Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And it's the final episode for the year 2020. Let's all get a round of applause for that. 2020 is going by the wayside. And um, it's a very exciting night tonight. This is the first time we've had um, this many people on the show at one time since the first time uh, Jeff Copsetta and RJ Nevins were both on the show, which was the episode we did after the uh, final production shoot for the uh, <coughs> Walking Point of the movie. And so uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome, Brandon. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome, RJ Nevins. I'm excited to have everybody here tonight. Yeah, man. It's, it's awesome good to be here. Good to be here. So um, feels like we've come full circle now, right? We're <laughs> we're getting into it. We're getting big. Don't mind me. I'm not ignoring you guys. I'm just trying to share us to the Facebook live feed so all of our uh, friends can watch us. So we are going to do something very interesting tonight. Jeff and I were trying to think of um, subject matters that we really haven't covered on this podcast yet, and one of the ideas we came up with is the contribution to an- from animals to the war. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And everybody here has a specific thing they want to talk about. But first and foremost, how's everybody doing uh, during the finalization of 2020? Uh, I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah, 2020 right? has uh, not been a good year, but it's not been bad. I've, I've had worse, but we're getting we're getting through one day at a time. Luckily, I've got two little girls who keep me uh, exhausted. So never a dull moment there. Yeah, man. Uh, same with us. We're just, we're, we're hanging in there. Things are good. Uh, as good as they can be. Um, you know, I feel like probably doing same thing everybody else is just trying to stay safe, trying to stay sane, trying to stay busy, trying to keep working. And, uh, yeah. And I'm surrounded by Texans tonight. Holy hell. Yeah. <laughs> you feel safe. You, you feel safe, don't you? Yeah. Here in uh, cold yeah. 61 degrees, Florida. I just got done going on a quick run outside. Boy, is it cold. But uh, anyhow, Jeff, I know you've been jumping at the bit to share the story that you wanted to get into tonight. So why don't you go ahead and crack this episode off and uh, get it running, fella? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just I wanted to, to tack on what those guys were talking about 2020. I mean, yeah, it's been really rough. I mean, uh, I, I bought a classic car. I bought a I bought a DPW <laughs> from World War II. I've got a son on the way. Whoa, wait, well, wait, what? what? What was that last part? That. <laughs> it's been was it? Rough. What do they say? Two negatives and then go with a positive? <laughs> <laughs> so you got a son on the way? Yeah, yeah. Burying the lead on that. Congratulations. You haven't shared that yeah. news with me yet. I don't know if I'm the well, last one yeah. to move. Well, then I figured this is the best way to do it. Yeah, she's about, I don't know, 12 weeks or so. Um, but, you know, with the testing that they can do now, they basically like, yep, that's that's a boy. <laughs> so, which is kind of what we were hoping for. So two boys, two girls. You know, I got the boys as the bookends. And, and uh, yeah, you know, stay young. Well, you'll have a basketball team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's okay. Nobody cares about basketball anyway. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> So, yeah, so like Don said, you know, this has been a really – this is a great World War II podcast for a lot of reasons because we do we, – we get to cover a really broad range of, of topics and subjects. We always try to talk about our reenactors, how important they are around the country, around the world, you know, keeping history alive and what we do. Um, so it's always fun to be able to interact that way. So 
you know, yeah, we've talked about the importance of commemorations and anniversaries. We've talked about battles and different anniversaries, you know, with that. Uh, we've gone into reenacting gear and things like that. But we want to talk about animals. You know, um, I just kind of happened to mention briefly last episode that, you know, there's some strange animals out there that people don't realize uh, played a part in World War II. I think when people think about animals in World War II, I would think they would, have, you know, probably the horses. You sure. know, Germans have to use a lot of horses. Uh, naturally, I know RJ's like, whoa, dude, you're supposed to say dogs, number one. Uh, but of course, you know, horse, it's just a good, kind of horse was a very inspirational <laughs> film. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and then maybe somebody with a little bit deeper knowledge would, would think about, you know, over a thousand elephants that were used to build the, the Burma Road. Um, but one unique connection I have with a very unique animal is about 10 years ago, I got a great invite from a, from a guy that was interning where I was working in Parks and Wildlife at the time. And they've got an exotic ranch, um, about 4,000 acres outside of Falfurious in South, South, South Texas. And um, there was a, a particular species of animal there that was threatening to hit the endangered list. So we had to knock him down. And when I got the invite, I'd never even heard of this animal. And I wanted to kind of do some research before we were going to try to hunt this thing. And that's when I came across the scimitar horned oryx. Now there's basically two species. There's a scimitar horned, and then there's the other one that's a little more popular that people may know as the gemsbok. Uh, gemsbok is kind of a grayish animal with the white, really cool white features on the face and big straight horns. Whereas the scimitar horned is more of just a real white color with like a deer tan around the neck. And then these huge horns that go back and almost touch their, their rear. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's rumored that it was the scimitar horned oryx that created the, uh, the, the unicorn, the fairy tale critter, you know, the unicorn there. So I don't know how true that is or not, but like I said, reading about it and understanding how hard it was to hunt this animal. And it was even on a 4,000 acre enclosure, it was a difficult hunt in August. It was a three day hunt, got it on that last day. It cost me more to mount the thing than it did to shoot it, fortunately. Um, so how important were scimitar horned orcs during World War II? Um, you know, initially they were native to North Africa, Southwest Asia. Um, and now the largest herd is, is actually here in Texas. There's more scimitar horned orcs here than anywhere else, which is interesting. Um, I think climate has a lot to do with it. But early parts of World War II, uh, you know, Germany starting to take over um, the, the French North African coast and they're starting to push uh, westward. And uh, we had something to say about that. So, you know, Monty and the 8th Army helps drive uh, Rommel halfway across uh, uh, Africa. And they were a huge, huge food source, not only for the British Army and the American Army, but also for the Germans. So they were all but wiped out between that uh, and the, uh, the Civil War in the country of Chad. Um, the, uh, the scimitar horned orcs kind of became the main food staple over there. And I can tell you firsthand, it is incredible meat. It is really incredible meat. You know, that's one of the things that a lot of people don't take into consideration when reading up on World War II or any war or any conflict for that matter. You know, they think, oh, well, they had K rations, C rations and all that. But let's be honest, when you're on the front line, uh, you're usually the last one to actually get that trickle down to you. And And you can only eat so much spam and crackers and all that when you have a food source of fresh meat like that and not to mention three quarters of these guys in the time they all grew up hunting on farms in the woods anyhow and so 
um, it's probably a little nice to go out on a on a um, mission, if you will, to you know capture some food instead of trying to kill a human and you know just just get for momentarily just get a little bit glimpse of going back to the way it was when you're a kid or before you got over there and just to have that food the protein the energy that comes from the protein of that red meat that cannot be you know underestimated at all yeah absolutely and and animals you know not just the food source there was a lot of working animals used during world war ii and and uh, i think this is a good segue uh into uh to what brandon vineyard can bring on uh, also, a fellow rain actor, really good friend of mine, uh, helped with a project that we're going to talk about here in a minute with RJ, um, but has, uh, looks like a really, uh, just following him on pictures, he was blowing my phone up when he was up there. He's got a really cool reenacting World War II animal experience that I think our listeners are going to love to hear about Brandon. Take it away, Brandon. Yeah, so, uh, you know, with the Tri-State Living History Association, and uh, Don, you interviewed my dad back I guess it'd be two years ago now yep. when you were down at the museum. So uh, we we do the 34th Infantry Division, uh, something that's not really done a lot about. And uh, just last month, we went up in the hills of Pennsylvania, absolutely gorgeous. And we went to a 1,600-acre mule farm. Uh, it's called Janice Place. And we spent the entire week working with mules and shooting some promo videos and working on a documentary to cover these beasts of burden that they're called and uh, telling the story of pack mules and how the, uh, the army used those through, uh, through Italy. And it was a, it was an awesome experience. I hadn't, I've got experience, you know, another country boy working with mules and horses here and there, but it was a, it was a great experience. And, you know, these mules, not not to take away from the dogs. We all know the dogs did, <laughs> did you awesome ran, thing. You done ran RJ off. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, no one really talks about how important the mules were and what they were used for. I mean, you know, one regiment would need two to 300 mules just to keep them adequately supplied uh, through Italy. And, of course, you know, coming, coming into the 1940s, you know, mech- mechanized trucks, tanks, Jeeps were all the rave. And so the army started thinking, we don't need all these horses and mules. Let's start, you know, let's start getting rid of them. And uh, in 1942, the U.S. Army only procured 20 horses. That's a little short-sighted. That's how co- <laughs> yeah, that's how confident they were. Sure. So, you know, of course, they they went through North, North Africa and, uh, you know, once they started Intelling Operation Husky into Sicily, they started realizing that deuce and half's not going to get up that rocky that rocky mountain. Nope. What are we going to do? And so they started going back to uh, horses and mules, and you know, basically, like you said, all these farm boys who grew up hunting, they took them and said, "Oh, you worked with horses. Now you're a mule skinner," which is what they called the guys who who worked with them. And uh, it, it's been a great experience, and I I knew nothing about it four months ago. Um, and the reason we we started doing this, of course, is because our, uh, our lieutenant, his grandfather went through Northern Italy and he was a mule skinner and, uh, a mule actually saved his life. Wow. They were, uh, they were on a run to run some supplies up, some ammo up to the, uh, the front lines. And of course he's on the lead side of the mule, which is the left side. And the Germans started shelling them. And, uh, the mule took the blunt of the shrapnel, killed the mule, sadly, but, my uh, my friend's grandpa survived and he said that was you know we just wanted to start telling the story of these amazing animals and that's just one story of many 
Uh, we've been interviewing veterans all over the country for this documentary we're working on. And just about every single one of them will, will confidently say that if it wasn't for the mules and horses, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have gotten the supplies they needed to win the war. And that's why we want to tell it, you know, as Jeff and I have talked many times uh, back at the museum about what, what stories we want to tell. Everyone wants to tell about the guy pulling the trigger, but no one tells a story about what it takes to get the bullets <laughs> to that guy pulling the trigger. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. We went up there and uh, Jana and Kenny Zimmer are, are two of the mule guy, mule people up there who helped train us. And we got all the packs. We got, the, we got some amazing reproduction crates. So we learned how to care for the animals, you know, brush them down, load them up lash all the uh, all the boxes to them which was you know something interesting it takes a lot to do that but the these these animals are smart it these mules were just amazingly smart and amazing to work with and i had a big belgium mule that was about the size of a clydesdale and we got along great and i always say you know he he listened to me we never had any problems but I know he's well aware that at any given moment he controlled that entire situation. <laughs> he could have, he, he could have thrown just a little bit of weight and flung me through the woods. So, uh, so Brian, no, let me a, ask you, let yeah. me ask you this. So for other reenactors that listen to this, is this an opportunity that was unique just to the 34th living history group, or is this something that other reenactors could also experience? You know, that could they call make a reservation? Is it something that they do for everybody? How's it work? How'd you guys get involved? You know, we, we got involved. It was crazy. Uh, our lieutenant lives up in Virginia, started researching it, looking around, and he got a hold of one of his police buddies who just bought some land out in this area in Virginia we were in. And uh, he had come across this lady, Jana, who is just amazing. And so Corey called her up, told her, hey, look, we want to start doing some uh, videos on YouTube. We're we're doing a lot of things and she fell in love with it and got all of her mule friends in the area signed up. So, I mean, people can go out there and ride them, but no, I sadly it's, it's something that's pretty much unique to the tri-state living history association. It's a great relationship we've built with her to come out and she trusts us with our animals. And, you know, I think we spent about a day and a half training with them before we really got out there and did anything with them. So, that's awesome. Well, you know, it's we had, you know, we we had a we had a couple city boys with us who had never been around something that big. So. That's even more realistic. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We all fans of the Pacific, we're all familiar with Edson's Raiders, but the Army had the Merrill Marauder, and I was recently reading up on that, and um, I'm in contact with a guy whose father served and uh, grandfather served. I'm trying to procure that interview, but. Uh, the Merrill's Marauders, they had a group of mule skinners because uh, the, their whole thing was to be behind the Japanese lines to do sabotage in the background. And because of Burma and all the hills and the mud, they needed a way to move that ammunition around, all the gear, all the artillery pieces. And being a mule skinner is super hard work. Obviously, you're in charge of that particular animal. But after trucking around all day, if you get to a pass that the mule can't get through with the weight, you have to unload the mule, yeah. take the mule across the river. You mm -hmm. and your other mule skinners have to pick up all that gear, put it on your backs, carry it across, reload up the mule, all the while trying to keep quiet so you're not heard by the enemy. Get to your bivouac for the day. While all the other guys are digging in, you dig in your position. Everybody else is kind of settling down. Now you got to go back, unload the mule again, clean it down, feed it, try to maintain it quiet. And like you were saying, with all those mules, 
you have all those mules that carry the ammo, then you have two more mules to carry all the food that you need to feed the mules. And so just by having them, that makes the logistics of the entire operation that much. And trying to keep those <laughs> those jackasses quiet, it just that's a lot of time and discipline. And that's that's hard work. And it, it, it does. It, it takes a lot of time. I mean, you're talking two to three people to properly lash down uh, and load and unload a mule. And, you know, we did a lot of research and we had just the, the old rope they would have used when they first did this. Now, I'm sure guys, as they always did, you know, innovated mm -hmm. when they got out there and found quick ways to do it. Sure. But when you're when you're trying to tighten it down, it takes, you know, 30 feet of rope for one box and you're just lashing and lashing and coming across things and testing it and coming across things. And all the and while, this, then, this mule may be getting annoyed by bugs, flies, what have you, the environment. It may not, you know, yes, they're trained to cooperate, but it's still a living being with its own mind. So it's got to be. Yeah. And kind of like they a, had, go ahead. They had, they had all the, you know, they dealt with all the, the shelling and the bullets and everything else. And yeah, they're an animal. They're going to get skittish. And there's, when you put a 1500 pound animal in there, <laughs> a yeah, lot of things gonna, can go wrong when they when they get spooked. <laughs> just going to bring that up too. I mean, they're they're just as susceptible to be a casualty on the battlefield as as the man right. next to it, of course. You know, and and uh, you know what I would think if a mule goes down, I mean, just like a deuce and a half, you're you don't have time. You know, you got to get all that stuff off of them to to exfil the the uh, the area. So, uh, what I'm thinking is, as mules that have been killed in action, they would probably make really good dog food, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we need to start talking about dog sherm then, huh? Possibly. Some glue. Make them into glue. You know, hey, that reminds me of a, a story that kind of, it was very influential to me when it came to like starting to watch or starting to work on Walking Point and things like that, writing the script and all. And uh, there's a gentleman, Lieutenant William Putney, who was uh, very instrumental in, um, you know, the whole war dog training program back in the 40s. Um, he's kind of really started it. He was a veterinarian who, you know, turned up, signed up and went on and got assigned to the third Marine division and took his war dog platoon with them to Guam. And he, he tells a story about, he had a dog named Cappy and uh, you were talking about the cat, the donkeys and mules taking casualties and stuff. And this story that he told was just so interesting. And it's one of the reasons why he, he wrote a book called always faithful about it. And um, he talks about how they were taking fire and Cappy <clears throat> ran out in front of them, whether it's on purpose or not, and uh, took a bullet for him. But it would have actually hit um, it would have actually hit uh, Putney had his dog Cappy not jumped out in front of him. So, I mean, to hear that guy tell the story and, you know, I'm sure people tell stories like uh, that about mules, but it was definitely a, a heart wrenching story to hear, hear a grown man talk about that. Yeah, just to, just to follow up on, on the death of, you know, as the as the Germans towards the end of the war started retreating. And, of course, as the U.S. always does, we procured a lot of uh, mules from, you know, the Germans and from Italian farmers and stuff. But as they started getting pushed back, the Germans started realizing that we were using their mules against them. And, you know, we've we've read stories of guys who just they would leave the mules tied onto the trailers and set the trailers on fire and or just shoot the mules and shoot the horses. And a lot of the vets recall stories and, you know, these farm guys, that was something that really, really hit them hard was, you know, coming yeah. across these burned burned bodies of good animals just so they wouldn't be used again. So yet same same line, those you know, these animals 
are just the, the silent heroes of World War II. And, you know, you know, thanks to Walking Point and stuff, they're starting to get a lot more credit. So there's a lot so, more yeah, people before us. Yeah, for sure. But we, we've, yeah. we've mentioned Walking Point a few times. Uh, so for people who have never heard about this project, RJ, could you could you uh, expand on that a little bit? And and I don't want to put you on the spot on this one story, but I was hoping you'd share it. I think it had to do with Putney about just from a veterinary standpoint. Uh, after after we talked about where Walking Point was, do you remember the story about the fish and the diet and how it was affecting the dogs in the Pacific? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I think I do remember that. And kind of before I, I talked to talk about Walking Point, I told myself that, uh, and I'm so glad Brandon's on here too. I didn't know Brandon was yeah. going to be on here because I, you know, with how crappy 2020's been. You three dudes, I'm just going to go in order of the way I met them. Brandon, if we would have never called you and we would have never got in touch with you at the National Museum of the Pacific War, you could have hung up on us and told us to go pound sand. And <laughs> who are these Who are these filmmakers coming in here wanting to use our place and all this? Um, man, I'm so thankful that you took the time to listen to us and give us a shot and run that all the way up to um, – you know, up the, up the chain to get permission for us to come in there and film. It was absolutely instrumental. And, and because of that relationship, that's how we met Jeff and Jeff uh, just helped us tremendously. And, and, you know, it would, nothing would have got done had it not been for Jeff. We had so many different things pop up on set that was, you know, just, just needed some leadership there on location. And, and Jeff was there to provide it. Well, this and, was my uh, plan B. This was the plan B. <laughs> was, if it goes to hell in a handbasket on set, that's it. That'll end it. And and then Don, too, buddy, you coming to help us on set the days that we filmed in Bukelia, Florida, and coming up to Orlando with us for the AKC event and helping us there and just your podcast and just the way you just kind of just jumped into this thing, like jumping into a swimming pool and doing a cannonball, man. You were just all in. There was no no pulling back. So it's just, uh, it's just good to see you guys and just a heartfelt thank you to, to all you guys. It, it means a lot to us. Well, isn't it crazy how a, a project like that can change so many people's trajectory in life? I mean, if it wasn't for that pod, uh, that um, project you're working on, and if it wasn't for the, uh, the museum, Jeff wouldn't be the co-host. Um, as you said, you're, you would have, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I won't hold that against you too much. Um, you, you would have had a, you know, you would have had a harder time finding uh, realistic uh, locations to shoot the the first half of your project at, and just everything just kind of fell in place, all based off of your passion that you had for uh, the story and for the dogs of war. What I'm hearing is I need to start invoicing you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It sounds like some billable hours in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, ironically enough, RJ, Lou just texted me about something oh, else you're working on. Literally just now. This is crazy. <laughs> Lou, uh, for those listening, Lou is Lou Wagner. He played Private Markle. He was kind of the protagonist of the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, to, to go back to your original question, Don, yeah, Walking Point is a... Uh, it's a novel that I wrote. It's a feature film screenplay, and we we adapted it into a short film as kind of a proof of concept uh, to kind of bring more light to uh, some of the first trained dogs uh, in the history of the United States and how they helped repatriate uh, Guam from the uh, from the Japanese. And you know, there's a a beautiful lady, Susan Bahari, who has a uh, a memorial that is on Guam called Always Faithful. Um, 
and it's it depicts a, a Doberman sitting on top of this huge bronze uh, block and it lists the 25 names of the dogs who actually perished on the island during those, I don't know, less than three weeks. I think they were there when they were repatriating it and coming through with the dogs. And so, uh, you know, it's it's the story that we wanted to kind of focus on. It's it's obviously historical fiction based on kind of true events that, that actually transpired. And so, um, yeah, we just wanted to bring that to light. And, you know, with, with Susan's help, um, she also wrote the foreword for the book, but, and, and I'll talk about this later too, but she is extremely instrumental in the welfare of all um, dogs that have served their country in the United States. She's done some amazing things. She just, I think she just dedicated during COVID in October uh, up in Arlington, a, um, I think it was a military uh, monument depicting all the female dog handlers and um, it's this beautiful, big life-size statue of a a female in uniform and she's bending down and she's she's kind of kneeling down and talking you know kind of petting her dog it's amazing and she's she's done all those around the country and she's involved right now in a huge movement to get a uh, like a national service dog monument up you know if, just for your listeners if you know you want more information on it i think the website is the national service animals monument.org and so it's it's a huge thing that she's trying to pick up and it it's not just honoring dogs, it's horses, it's mules, it's canaries, it's birds. It, it's an amazing thing. And it's gonna be a park-like kind of walk through and there'll be a, a monument for each each one of these animals and how they serve their country, so. Now, what was, for those who aren't familiar, what was the key role? Um, what was the utilization for the dogs, especially in the Pacific? Um, their key role was their nose and try to, to uh, hunt out um, you know, encamped or um, in placed Japanese soldiers, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not an expert or anything, but it's, it's, it's fairly common knowledge, I guess, that they were used for sentry work and nose work, um, you know, not so much apprehension and things like that, but they used them to, you know, by the time the dogs got there, um, you know, there were a lot of the uh, Japanese soldiers that were still kind of hidden throughout the island. There were snipers there and there were you know, embedded in caves and the only way to really find them, I guess, outside of, uh, you know, various other techniques was to use the dog's nose, flush them out. You know, and the thing that we've talked about before and that's always impressed me about the story, kind of going back to Brandon's talking about how we had 20 horses because, uh, you know, as the war progressed and you say, oh, we're in the need of these things. At the beginning of the war, the Marine Corps and the Army, they didn't have a kennel structure. And so, they came up with this idea, someone did, and they brought to fruition. And as this depicted in your movie, they needed dogs and they needed dogs that were relatively trained and uh, good behavior. But where do you get them? And as you depicted in your movie, citizens donated them. They basically enlisted their dogs to go fight the war, just like their sons were going off, just like their daughters are going off. Yeah. Yeah, man. And I, I tell people all the time when I'm trying to you know, explain the story is, you know, the first thing I sometimes say, especially if we're if we're in a pitch meeting or something, we're pitching the idea to somebody that, you know, I, just imagine if you had a dog and you all of a sudden, for whatever reasons, you know, what were happening in your life at that point in time that you wanted to, uh, you know, donate your dog to the war effort, not knowing you would ever see it, knowing that you have children involved and, you know, your wife and family members you're letting your dog go. You know, I don't know how you, my dog's part of my family. So sure. I mean, it's just a difficult decision. So I couldn't imagine, you know, I couldn't imagine that. I'd be like 
asking Sergeant Soares to donate Duke. <laughs> Good luck with that. Would you do it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that'll so. go over well. <laughs> I wouldn't even let my boss and Terrier go, not that they want her. Well, it's something else to think of, too, on that point. I think there was only about four stations, four recruiting stations, where they were accepting the for the Dog for Defense program. It was like Virginia, Nebraska, Montana, and then California. So even to be able to, to, to do it, it was quite the process. I mean, you, you were committed to giving your dog up. It wasn't just, you know, take it down the street either. Yeah, oh, yeah they had volunteer trainers training the dogs. It was a, it was an interesting time. It was, it was brand new. So, you know, they were kind of paving the road for everybody else. There is Far like farmers, a, are, farmers are doing the same thing with the mules. Really? Donating yeah. them? I mean, it all, it all goes back to the American citizens stepping up back then and right, doing, yeah. between rationing and everything else, making that sacrifice of, you know, one farmer might have a mule that was his moneymaker, you know, and said, Hey, <laughs> And even even kind of going back to the what we we're talking about earlier about um, don't uh, kind of citizens input and so many farmers. 4-H was huge back then. I'm sure that 4-H rolled out a, a thing to the young farmers, the kids who were raising mules and all that. I'm sure 4-H probably implemented some sort of program to help train these mules up and get them ready to be donated to go off to war after they realized this was something they needed to do. Yeah, possibly. Real quick on on the topic of RJ was talking about in this book Rising Sun, um, this is about the uh, Nisi, uh, the American citizens of Japanese descent who served in war. Um, there's a chapter in here where they're talking about when they started rolling out the uh, war dog program that they enlisted some of the uh, Nisi soldiers to go work with them. It didn't last very long at all. I guess whatever their goal was didn't really work. But I not to get too much into. It, but in the chapter they're kind of talking about how. Um, obviously everybody emits a different pheromone. And so I guess the hypothesis at the time is, well, if we can get um, Japanese American soldiers around these dogs, those dogs can get used to, you know, the scent, um, the visualization of them and things like that. And so there was like a secret early tra training program where they were sending Japanese American soldiers to these, uh, these kennels to work with the dogs to get them kind of to know their enemy, quote unquote. And it didn't last, like I said, but a few weeks, and then they they redeployed them back with their unit. But in that book, there there's about a chapter and a half on on that, which is pretty interesting. We are getting that down. Sounds like it could be a movie. Yeah, it, it could. Um, <laughs> From the other vantage point, we're getting down to the uh, countdown because anytime you have more than uh, one person in a meeting on uh, Zoom, they uh, they want to hit you with a time limit. But before we wrap this up, and what we'll do. Um, if you guys want to hang out, that's fine. We can kill the meeting and restart it and go another 40 minutes. Um, if you've got things to do, just don't, don't rejoin the invite and whoever's left will carry on. But before we go, one of the things I wanted to bring up, um, and I have a pre-produced thing I'll, I'll maybe play at the beginning of the next one. Did you know that um, D-Day, they were still using carrier pigeons over mm -hmm. in France? Um, I found this interesting article. It's talking about famous quote-unquote animals of World War II. And number four was Gustav. Gustav was one of the RAF's messenger pigeons during the Second War and one of six <clears> birds <throat> given to Reuters news correspondent Montague Taylor ahead of D-Day. On June 6, 1944, Gustav carried back the first news from the D-Day landings in Normandy. He flew more than 150 miles from the northern coast of France to his loft near Potts, uh, Portsmouth <clears throat> in just over five hours. You want to talk about slow news delivery system. Maybe that's why they didn't use them too much. But yeah, he reported 
Took him five hours to get there with a message that said, we are just 20 miles or so off the beaches. First assault troops landed at 0750. Signal says no interference from the enemy gunfire on the beach. Streaming steadily in formation. Uh, listing Typhoon uh, Fortress crossing since 0545. No enemy aircraft seen. Interestingly enough, they don't talk about which landing beach they were that uh, Gustav flew from. But, uh, yeah, five hours is a, is a little long to get uh, the stories back. And Did they uh, have apprehension pigeons? Oh, I'm sure. Well, nowadays, we, uh, you know, I'm sure I went, I, they probably had, I bet the Germans had falconers. They probably had falconers right. out there. Yeah. To get his eye. <laughs> Which yeah. is probably, uh, you know, we knew carrier pigeons were used more in World War One, but. I would imagine there had to be a platoon of falconers, right? I mean, that's when we're never really came up in a movie, but if, especially during World War One, if a lot of your signal, you know, a lot of your message has been carried by carrier pigeon, why wouldn't you have falconers out there trying to intercept them? There, there is a movie about it. Really? It's called Valiant. What? Yeah, it's called Valiant. It's an amazing kids cartoon. It's a cartoon. Yeah, swear to God, it's called Valiant, and it it, it covers that. And the German is the the villain is a German hawk. Full disclosure: the only <laughs> only war-based child's cartoon I saw was Stumpy, uh, Stubby, yeah. <laughs> which was a great little movie uh, about the uh, little terrier from World War One. Um, for you guys watching us on YouTube, Twitch, and Periscope, hold tight. We're going to uh, we'll catch up with you here momentarily and uh, rejoin this uh, podcast, and um, we will finish things up. But hold tight, and we will be back momentarily. Perhaps one of the craziest inventions to come out of World War II was that of Dr. Lytell S. Adams, a dentist from Philadelphia. Apparently at some point, Mr. Adams, or Dr. Adams for that matter, he took a trip down to New Mexico. And it was in New Mexico that he fell in love and was completely fascinated with the New Mexican free-tailed bat. And so when he was down in New Mexico, he saw their abilities, he saw the things they were doing in nature, um, how well they used their hands, and the objects that they were carrying in flight. And so Adams got this idea, if you will, that if he took these bats, got a large number of them, gave them essentially small bombs or grenades, and dropped them over the cities of Japan that were predominantly made up of structures that were made from bamboo, wood, paper, things of that nature, essentially these towns, these cities were very flammable. And so Adams got this crazy idea, well, why don't we get a gang load of these bats, a huge, huge number of these bats, essentially give them little bombs, drop them out of a plane, let them burn the city down, problem solved. And now, believe it or not, this crazy idea damn near came to fruition, and here's how it happened. On January 12, 1942, Adams wrote up a letter outlining his plan, and he sent it to the White House. And I know what you're thinking. Look, it's World War II. There's probably a lot of crazy people out in the country with ideas for weapons to defeat the Germans, to defeat the Nazis. And I'm sure the White House, the Army, the Air Corps, they were probably inundated with these letters. Here's how Dr. Adams got his through. Apparently, Dr. Adams knew and had a first-hand relationship with the First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he contacted her, said, hey, I wrote up this letter. I want to send it to you. Please see that it gets seen. So she does. It did. And so President Roosevelt got Adams' letter. I don't know if how much Eleanor persuaded him, if he actually believed in the context of this letter, the content, the idea behind the idea. But he kind of gave it the initial green light. He contacted Adams and said, look, I'm going to set up a meeting with you and Colonel William J. Donovan, who was the head of wartime intelligence. Now, apparently something in this meeting between Adams and Colonel Donovan worked out because the project went 
ahead as planned. I mean, it got greenlit. They started research and development. They went out and they collected a large number of Mexican free-tailed bats. Once they had all the bats acquired, they started developing small-scale bombs. At a certain point, through trial and error, research and development, the eggheads figured it out. They produced a 17-gram kerosene bomb that was built for the bats to carry, and it was tied to their leg by a lanyard. Okay, so now we have our bats. They got their bombs, they got their grenades, whatever you want to call them. They're full of kerosene. We've got these flying little incendiary bats now. Cool. How do we deploy them? They went back to the drawing board, got the eggheads together, the engineers. And so what they did next was they built a larger bomb. But instead of a payload of dynamite, TNT, whatever you put in bombs, they filled this damn thing full of bats. And the bats had their kerosene bombs. The next problem was you had to figure out how are we going to transport this large bomb that was full of bats holding little bombs to drop on Japan and burn the whole damn place down. How do we get a bomb full of living animals from point A to point B? Apparently through technology and refrigeration and research. Bats, once they get to a certain body temperature, they go into hibernation mode. So the idea was let's take the bats, put them in the big bomb, holding their little bombs. Let's cool down the big bomb to put them in hibernation mode, strap the bomb to the plane. As they got closer to the target, they'd start to warm up the bomb. They would drop the bomb. The bomb would open up. The bats at this point are now coming out of hibernation mode. They'd fly down to the cities of Japan where they would instinctively nest in large rooftops, awnings, what have you. And then according to documentation, allegedly these little guys would chew through a lanyard at which point would activate a timed mechanism on these little hand grenades. They would fly the coop, if you will. Bombs would blow up. Houses burnt down. We win the war. That was the idea. That seems like a little bit of revisionist history just to appease the people in PETA. You know damn well those bats weren't chewing through the lanyards to detonate. No, they were gone. They sent them down there. They were not to come back. But that is a lot of money to spend on research and development. I mean, okay, let's hibernate them all for something we never used. The, the planning was, you know, sound good. It, it seemed like it would work on paper. That's a lot of time, effort, and energy. But that just shows you the amount of time and money we spent on things that we never used. Were they you know, saying bats or cats? Bats. Bats. bats <laughs> bat bombs. <laughs> Cat bombs. Cats would work too. Cats would work too. You know, we had uh, mysteries at the museum when I worked at the when I worked with Jeff. Mysteries at the museum called me. I think it was before Jeff was even there, and they called me asking if we had one of those. Really? Um, <laughs> the bat or like, the bomb? No. I was like, I was like, I was like, we have a bat bomb, but not the one that you, not the interesting one that you want to talk about. And they were wanting the one that yeah. held the live bats. <laughs> That's crazy. The other crazy story that came out of Japan itself was the, uh, the, the, uh, the incendiary uh, weather balloons that they sent over. Did you know that? The, uh, did you know that the only uh, American citizen to die on this continent, not counting Pearl Harbor, but the actually on the mainland was a um, middle, uh, church Sunday school teacher, 19 years old, pregnant, named Elsie um, Adams, I think. Um, they were on. They're heading out to do a Sunday school picnic. Car broke down. Her husband got out to talk to the road crew while working on his car. She took herself and four Sunday school students out walking around in the woods. They found one of these um, these uh, balloon bombs that hadn't detonated. They walked up, started toying around with it. Boom. 
killed her and all four of the Sunday school students. Of course, the military covered it up because, well, we don't want that news to get back in Japan because then they'll triple down on their production of those damn, those damn balloons. But those were the only people to die during World War II on the continental United States. And sadly, it was, was a, a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were called Fugo bombs, and they were found even as far east as there was a couple that hit Texas, and I think the furthest east was actually the state of Michigan, where they found a few that that hadn't detonated. Yeah. And the idea behind it was not to necessarily kill people; it was a it was more of a strategic standpoint to set wildfires in the Pacific Northwest. They were an incendiary bomb that were basically to be carried on the jet stream across the Pacific and to knock out the uh, basically that wood supply you know, from our forests up in the Pacific Northwest. Which is why the first all um, led both uh, NCO and um, leadership, the uh, 555th Airborne Regiment, the Triple Nichols, the mm. first all African-American uh, Airborne Division or military division, period. That's why they never got to go over and serve. They said, hey, you guys have all this jump training. Now we're going to give you some firefighting training. And they sent them out west to Oregon to um, prepare to fight off the fires created by these balloons that never happened and they created most of the techniques that the smoke jumpers use today <clears throat> so uh, that's where the military utilized the first all african-american airborne division uh the 555th they actually sent them out to the west coast because of that good piece of history well it makes sense yes. because um in 2003 i got deployed four months before i went overseas i got deployed to missoula montana to fight a 27,000 acre wildfire that was threatening the town up there um not at all was that any kind of training that i would ever use overseas so it was a, just a perfect army military you know decision to put somebody up there that makes absolutely no sense and what you know it's not going to further your your ability to go to war at all but we did it. You know, <laughs> I want to I want to steer away from the uh, the topic of tonight. We just did forty minutes on it, which is great. But um, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about this, Jeff. Now that uh, Brandon's here, um, you guys both do living history. I have never i I got lucky enough to do one event so far this year, and I'm hoping to do one in January. Um, it's just going to be a straight up tactical on a, a Boy Scout property. It's like four miles long. But anyhow, I was at an event um, a few months back. And it was the second showing of the day. It was the event that happens at the Florida uh, Train Museum. And um, it's kind of a cool event. It's more of a mystery dinner theater type thing than it is a you know, historically correct uh, reenactment. Because the train actually moves down the five miles of the track. And every year the whole gimmick is that uh, you're Nazi-occupied France. You get to the train museum. There's Germans walking around. they got the flags up. They're handing out propaganda. Uh, people buy tickets. They get on the train. Um, the German reenactors, their leadership, they do a lot of improving. Um, they put on a show as the train goes down, they f stop and there's a skirmish with the airborne, the airborne loses, believe it or not. Um, then they go down to the end of the track and then they have a skirmish with the army. We take over the train as the train's going back down. There's conversation arguments with the German hierarchy. They're, once again, they're putting on the show for the, the riders. And then when it gets all the way back down to the train museum, there's a skirmish again between the Germans and the. Uh, Americans because they want to take their German leadership back and so we were doing a second show and I still don't understand how this happened um one first and foremost did you know there was Australian made M1 Garin receivers no me neither <laughs> apparently <laughs> um one of my reenactor buddies um he's an older gentleman he's actually a Vietnam vet believe it or not which makes this story a little more sad and sad he had this thing, and it used to be his son's, and, and he had some issues with it. Um, 
my gun my gun jammed up again from a hot round every once in a while i'll get a hot round where my um charging handle my bolt dislodges you know the little thumb on the bolt that goes underneath the charging handle it slams so hard so back so hard that it dislodges when that happened i heard a loud bang i they they're trying to say that a round was lodged in the barrel and because of the blanks are short enough another one was able to chamber behind it out of battery and still fire long story short and i have a photo i put up on my instagram page which blew up the whole rear end of his receiver of his M Graham blew up and hit him in the face. And I still don't know exactly how it happened, but that is probably the most catastrophic, uh, catastrophe of a firearm breakdown I've ever witnessed at an event. And I'll be honest with you, after that happened, because that happened at the end of the, the train line, when we got back in the trucks and went back down to the museum to do the final skirmish, when I laid down and I put my eye in the back of that that rear sight before I pulled that trigger, I was nervous as hell because you just saw somebody whose gun blew up in their face. And I have never I've seen guys burn their hands off their you know their bars because they weren't thinking that they just fired so many rounds and grabbed the ends. You know I've seen you know people's souls fly after boots, but I've never seen a gun blow up in someone's face. And that just it's kind of a reminder of how dangerous this hobby can be at times. Absolutely. Especially with the grands, we got to check those gas plugs. I mean, we've had, we've had those become projectiles once or twice. And yeah, I mean, op rods come off, you know, like you were saying, they just get, they just come off the track a little bit, but uh, yeah, you know, the biggest thing for folks to remember is you're, you're asking the weapon system to do something that it wasn't exactly intended to do. An 85 year old weapon system at that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. What's a blank? It's brass, it's primer, it's powder, but you're still, you're adapting the weapon to, to, to do, to make it do something that it wouldn't typically do. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I, I know even, you know, using older weapons, you know, revolvers, um, a lot of times when you're firing blanks out of a revolver, you'll sometimes you'll have a primer back out. And of course that's catastrophic for a revolver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to cycle. So sometimes you have to drill out the flash hole, just leave enough of a seat to, to uh, seat the primer. But for whatever reason, that larger flash hole will lessen that back pressure that pushes that primer out that will, you know, keep that cylinder from turning. So yeah, there's all kinds of ways to get hurt with weapons that they don't have to have, I mean, you know, live ammunition for folks to get hurt for sure. And I mean, whoever thinks to look for hairline fractures on the receivers when they're cleaning their gun after an event, but that's something we all need to remind ourselves that, you know, we all Absolutely. get complacent. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for six or seven years with the, uh, with the exception of the occasional dislodging of my charging handle from my bolt. I've never really had any big catastrophes like that, but it definitely makes you, oh yeah need to you know not get so complacent with what we're doing yeah yeah i've I've, I've never had a major one in my 17 years of doing this i think i've never had anything as bad as what you just mentioned happen at an event but the the thing i've come across multiple times is just muzzle awareness guys getting blasted Mm -hmm. uh, especially at tactical someone comes around a corner and spooks and takes it to the hand or the face and gets that powder but like jeff said you know I've, i've i've seen those I've seen those nuts pop off the back of the business end of those M1 grands a few times. And that's one thing that I think is, you know, it's again, that, that safety officer's job, what everyone's job, but that safety officer's job to just kind of remind people, you've got to keep those things tight and it's a, it's still a dangerous game. 
Well, luckily for this gentleman, he was wearing his non-air correct glasses. Like I said, he's a Viet- <laughs> he's a Vietnam vet. He actually um he he was a Arm helicopter pilot. <laughs> he was a helicopter pilot. He was shot down three times. Um, and um he avoided capture once. And yeah, his his farb he actually right on the outside of his glasses, his whole face was all beat up. We had the ambulance come and look at him. But if he didn't have his glasses on, he probably would have damn near lost an eye. Because even with the glasses, his eye was the eye itself still had busted busted blood vessels and everything else. So it was it was crazy. RJ, while we have you on here, obviously you've been on the show a few times and we've talked a lot about your your project. But one thing we haven't had the chance to talk to you since COVID happened was COVID was a real kind of a kick in the gut to your upcoming independent film festival schedule. But that has not deterred the fine people at all these different film festivals for recognizing your project for what it is. And you guys have been cleaning up in the awards department. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know, we we thought 2020 was just going to be the year for Walking Point to make its, you know, debut on the film festival circuit. And we were looking forward to going to all these film festivals, I think. In the grand scheme of things, uh, I think, of course, we're very close to the end of our run at this point. We have a couple more that have leaked out into 2021, but those are not until April or May. Um, and nothing really happening in between there since, you know, we've basically been on that 12-month circuit. Um, but I think we were accepted to close to about 30 festivals or so, which is a pretty good, pretty good ratio. <laughs> And, uh, you know, some of those we were simply just uh, honored to be official selections and others we were lucky enough, you know, one of our actors, Josiah Schreiber, won uh, Best Supporting Actor at the Garden State Film Festival, which is a a wonderful film festival up in New Jersey. Um, The Northern Virginia Film Festival is one of our latest ones. And uh, we were extremely honored there to bring home like the best short film. the film of the year, which beat out all their feature films and uh, and their short films and just a lot of other awards there. So we've just been really lucky. The sucky part is we haven't been able to been there to, in person to share it with everybody that, you know, helped make this thing. And that's that's the crappy part of that. Yeah. And um, it just sucks because there's so many other people that I know wanted to be a part of those being a part of those live events because they are fun. And, uh, you know, you meet a lot of great people there. If you're, you know, if you're looking to be in that industry, the entertainment industry you can always meet people and network. Um, but yeah, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the film. We're, we're starting to, uh, um, pitch it and market it as a, uh, uh like a seven hour mini series, like a limited series. Nice. Um, and so we've kind of been working on those scripts right now. So that's, take that into consideration that's like having to write seven movie scripts for the most part so there's some time in there um some dedication to it so that's that's kind of where we're at now and well that kind of lent into my uh, follow-up question which was going to be obviously this isn't the first project of uh from black 17 production and i was going to ask what are you working on next but it sounds like you maybe a little uh got your schedule full of that well we just um actually on d-day on december 7th we were we helped produce a film. It's a World War II film and kind of fits into this too. I don't even know if you guys know about this, but it's called The Band of Honor. No. And it's about it's about the uh, it's about the uh, the naval band that was on the USS Arizona when it was uh, attacked during Pearl Harbor. And there are some misconceptions about you know did they 
did they go man their stations or what, what did that, what did those band members do? Um, so the documentary, it's a feature documentary. It kind of details the lives of these 20 uh, young men that, that perished on the Arizona that day and their activities that day and who they were. It's a very educational um, uh, documentary and it's, it's really well done. It was by our friends, uh, Annette and Warren Hull, who uh, own a production, Anwar Productions out in Vegas. And uh, we, we teamed up with them to help produce this. So we had a, a limited release of it on December 7th at, if I get the time right, that was 7.48. I can't remember the exact time or something, but it coincided with when the, when the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. That's when they released it. And Jeff and I have talked about this in past episodes. That's the kind of story we need out there because I've, I've, I've got a whole library on my bookshelf. I've done a lot of research, a lot of – I've never even heard that story. I didn't even know there was a band on the Arizona that went down. And that's the type of stuff, especially guys like us who read a lot. We've seen every production put out on TV. We've seen most of the movies and we're, we're thirsty. We are thirsty for content that we're not overly way more than familiar with. I mean, so stuff like that, that is, that is the type of project that gets new eyes on it, especially from guys like us who are very, um, you know, aware of the topic of world war two. And so that's, that's awesome that you guys are getting that story out there and I'm excited to, uh, to see it come along. It's a really good story. You know, it details their hardships of trying to get it, try to get the band actually commissioned, I guess, if that's the right term and kind of some of the the hardships that they had doing that. And, and, you know, once they had it done and they started recruiting people to be in the band. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a lovely story that, uh, just documents their lives so that, uh, so that you know they're, they're kind of enshrined in history That's yeah you know if, if i'm not mistaken too the the arizona band i thought had had earned a uh through a competition you know without some of the other uh the fleet battleships there that they had won in november of 1941 and uh, in some competition that they, between the bands um yeah. if i'm not mistaken i, I want to say there was somewhere around there it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I yeah. think, a matter of fact, I think some of that is actually documented in in a band to honor in the documentary. I think they kind of they, talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, awesome. And the cool thing about working on documentaries like that is a lot of times when you're doing the research or uh, you're coming across content and context to tell the story, you come across other stories that kind of pique your interest that um, may break off into you know other projects down the road, and so it's. It's always cool when you, you you broach a new subject like that because you never know where it's going to take you. Yeah, we actually found um, a, a few uh, you know living people, people that were on the USS owner, survivors of it, um, that were part of that crowd, and uh, you know, so it gets their point of view and eyewitnesses that actually saw what was happening. Uh, one gentleman's Lou Conter. He's an extremely popular uh, guy about the USS Arizona and the history of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a really good story. And, you know, we were we were happy when Warren and Annette approached us a couple of years ago. We were looking for another kind of historical project to get involved in. And, you know, typically I like narrative and things like that. But documentaries are just as good. It's super educational. And, um, yeah, man, we're we're pretty excited about it. Because it's kind of a story like that that um, a lot of the casual observers of World War II aren't familiar with is that the whole fictional story of Saving Private Ryan was based off of a paragraph in the book uh, The Band of Brothers talking about, I think his name was Ninsky or something like that. He was a person whose brothers were killed. And then obviously we all know the Sullivan brothers who all went down on the same ship. And that's why the Navy stopped putting all 
family members on the same ship, but it was a paragraph in the book Band of Brothers that got the brainstorm going for the fictional story of Save It Private Ryan. And so, you know, it's always interesting to see what motivates and what sparks the flame of a, a cool project. Yeah, for sure. So this year is just about over. And uh, what do you guys, you know, it's, it's interesting because once again, I'm here in Florida, you guys are in Texas, but I think we can all argue, make the argument, no matter where you live, that we live in pretty much the, the two free, freest open states in the country right now. But uh, what do you guys have coming up for the holidays? You guys just kind of hiding out of your houses or you, you getting together with people? We're kind of doing a reduced Christmas this year because it's just, even here in Florida, we were open, but still, I mean, people are still, you know, uh, we're trying to we're protect ourselves. Oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh yeah. Why not? We're going to super spread. No, no, uh, we're, we're just, we're, we're kind of, it's just me and Chelsea here. Uh, we, we drove to Nashville a while back or a few last week to see some family and all that. So, uh, Chelsea and I will just be here and our daughter who has already moved over to Costa Rica. She's going to, she's coming back on Christmas to spend a couple of days and then she has to go back. So, uh, that, that's pretty much what we're going to do. We're, we're low key. If you can talk about it, um, was it a career opportunity? Was it education abroad? What took her down there? Oh, so, well, yeah, she went, she's a, she was a teacher here. And when she was in college, she, uh, she studied abroad and she met a a young gentleman over there who's a native Costa Rican, uh, Yoser Sirius. And he swept her off her feet and he's a teacher over there. And she came back and she was in love and she came back and told us she was in love. And, uh, you know, they, they had this long distance relationship for quite some time. And uh, she was set to move over there, I think in, I don't know, it was right when COVID hit, right? So yeah. everything kind of pushed her back, everything got closed down. And then um, they slowly started, Costa Rica started slowly opening uh, up to travel. And, and I think they opened up to Texas on October 16th or so, or October 15th, October 16th, she was on a plane and she was out of here. She, she was, she was through with it. Not only has she got so, love to go to, but she has love with a view. I mean, you can't compete with that. You can't yeah. compete with those beaches and that environment down there. I mean, yeah, it's super pretty over there. She's constantly sending us pictures of a, the big volcanoes and stuff over there. And so, yeah, we're super excited for it. She's getting married at the beginning of March. And so, um, you know, it's a destination wedding over there and we're, we're just excited for, her and yeah, but she has to come back every 90 days. So she's not actually oh, a, citizen of the visa. Of a visa. Yeah. And then, then when she gets married, she'll, she'll have dual citizenship, I believe. So what about you, Brandon? What do you got going on? Yeah, uh, we're, we're flying out East to see my brother and, uh, my cousins or my, my niece and nephew, my daughter's cousins. Uh, but it's going to be, it's just going to be us. You know, us few, we're not getting together with the family. My family's still in Southern Illinois and my mom works with the hospital and everything like that. So we're just, we're getting out of the, getting out of the house for a little bit and taking the girls on a trip. They're excited to see their, their cousins and play and everything like that. So we'll, we'll go up there and just hang out. Nothing, nothing crazy. And what about you, Jeff? Oh, well, some of it I already did. I had a couple of reenactor buddies that helped me here at the museum here in Burnham, but they came out this weekend and, and we were shooting our grands. And then, uh, one of the guys brought one of the training, uh, rifle grenades Ooh. for the grand. <laughs> we were, we were Those are fun. Back at each other. <laughs> Those are fun. It was too much fun. We had all this live ammo that we took down there 
I think we all fired like one end block. We're like, okay, where's all the blanks? Let's shoot this rifle grenade back and forth at each other. <laughs> so, That's fantastic. But no, yeah. <laughs> Been there, and, done that. You know, I'm I'm usually pretty low key on Christmas anyway. We have our uh, our little tradition is parents come down Christmas Eve and we watch White Christmas with the with the kiddos and everything and yeah that's pretty much it but you know as much as we talk about how bad 2020 was you know like i said i think we need to also keep in mind um it could have been a whole lot worse and i yep. think that's one of the things that draws us to history and draws us to this particular time in american history um to me like i said it, it, what created the, our identity what came out of uh, world war ii so you know i always kind of see things like that you know it's um it could be worse. It could be raining. It could be worse. You could be getting shot at and it could be a whole lot worse than that. So um, I think that's just the attitude. I think we need to, we need to keep in 2021, you know? Yeah. We, we got hit a little bit, but we're going to get back up. We're going to continue the march and push on and, and um, continue to hit the beach and in, in what we do and in, in keeping history alive. You know, one of my favorite things as a living historian during the Christmas season, and I was talking to one of my clients about this the other day is when it comes to pop culture, there's been no other era that has such an impact on modern day society than Christmas time and World War II. Because what, 87% of the Christmas carols that are still played to this day, yeah. even if they're remade, were written during this time because they were trying to, you know. It needs it. Yeah, they're trying to give those guys a home, yeah. a sense of. And as you and I talked about on Thanksgiving episode, Christmas was always the movable field goal. Oh, we'll be home by Christmas this year. I'm 43 comes around. We'll be home by Christmas. 44 comes around. We'll be home by Christmas. And so, yeah, Christmas. I mean, every every like even like I said, even if it's remade by a modern day musician, majority of the songs that we still listen to today were all from that era, and you will never beat that someone comes up with a new song and it just doesn't hold up it just doesn't give you that same feeling you know and it's it, it's crazy because my uh, the tri-state living history association we throw we usually throw an annual christmas party for our unit uh my friend's got a house up in rockford illinois and uh we've done it i think three years now at his house and him and his wife decorate decorate the house 1940s everyone shows up in their class a's early war uh you know all the food, you know, cookie cooks, all the original food, you know, 1940s dishes. And you got the music playing, of course, all the beer bottles and candy bars and liquor bottles, everything's relabeled. I mean, you, that's, you walk into my awesome. friend's house and it's 1940. And of course this year we didn't get to do it. Yeah. And uh, luckily we all got together out there in November to play with the mules, but it was something that a lot of the guys missed. It was, it was hard. Can you see yourself doing a, uh, a public living history event with the mules being there, obviously logistically it's, but I mean, f mentally, could you see doing all the work that would be required to have a display with a, a live pack animal like that? Cause obviously yeah, a I lot mean, of think, civil war people do it with horses. Yeah, I think, I think we could, I mean, we're, you know, I think we're a few years, quite a few years away from traveling with any mules to go places. But you know, when we were out there at Janice place, um, it's a small, you know, Pennsylvania Hills community. They're all really close. We had about 15 people come out, you know, outdoors. Um, we loaded up the pack mules, walked them up for everyone to look at, and uh, just kind of talked about how we used them and things like that. So, but I think that's one of the things, you know, we, we've started going virtual, trying to do more videos for our YouTube. Our, our kitchen video, I think, just hit 3 million views. Fantastic. So wow. we're trying to, we're trying to follow up. We're trying to follow up with that, but we're spread all over the country. So we're hoping this next one, 
kind of kicks that off. And that's what we're really trying to do. And before we get off here, RJ, I was just thinking it's crazy, you know, with your work on, on military dogs and what we're getting in with the mules, thinking about the military and training and technology and everything else that has changed animals, the dogs, the mules are still used. When we started talking about this six, seven months ago, one of our guys is an active duty Marine eating crayons out on the West coast. <laughs> and, uh, we started talking about, it. he goes, Oh yeah, I just got my certification for mule skinning. So really? the Marines are still, the, the Marines are still training people to be mule skinners. They got rid of their tanks, but they're keeping the mules. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have the heat. It won't melt the crayons. There you go. <laughs> Jeff likes that joke. <laughs> I use it too much. I use it too much. It never gets old. <laughs> but it, it just it, it goes to, it goes to show the importance of the animals. I think that you know, decades later, the military still uses them and knows the importance of. They're going to come a time when you need that dog, you need that mule, you need that animal to get the job done, and they're investing in people to know how to how to use them well not to mention look where a lot of active duty guys are right now in the environment mm -hmm. we're a better place to utilize mules i mean jeff can tell you he was there then you know you got these fobs out in the middle of nowhere sometimes you know dropping supplies in may not be you know logistically possible for one reason or another i mean we're a better place to use some of those animals in an active duty yeah. format right well, um, yeah, we'll it was, go ahead. It was just crazy. It, it was just a crazy thought I had as we were talking about it. I think, man, like dogs and mules are still being, everything's still being used all these years later. So yeah, it's crazy. Still relevant. It's crazy. You see the videos of the, uh, the German shepherds, the service dogs that are got their goggles on and they're getting strapped yeah. to the airborne guys and they're just jumping out of the plane. Jumping out. And it's like, it's crazy to see what they're doing with them. We, we kind of struggled with that a little bit when we were thinking about how we wanted to do Walking Point. Because we didn't know if, we just knew we wanted to do something. This is before I even started writing the feature script years and years ago. We didn't, at least I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to do a, uh, you know, something more current. You know, so a war dog movie more current where you could kind of highlight the awesomeness of jumping out of airplanes with your doggles on and, you know, all the technology and the cameras you can strap to the dogs, how cool that would be. And then it's like, well, do I want to make it about Vietnam? And that would be a great story. And the dogs that were used in Vietnam and the, the soundtrack would be just kick ass. And then. Yeah, but imagine the clearance on that. I, Half your budget would go to clearance <laughs> checks on the Creed's Clearwater Revival. <laughs> And then I and then I started to uh, I, I watched the documentary a long time ago called War Dogs of the Pacific and it was done by this gentleman named Harris Dunn and it was absolutely phenomenal and it captivated me listening to these gentlemen that were part of the repatriation of Guam and on Guadalcanal and stuff and they were just sharing their their what what happened to them um, you know with their dogs and stuff while they were actually going through you know Guadalcanal and Guam and, and all that and it was a very moving, touching uh, documentary. And at that point I was like, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, shuffle and start with, start walking point back in World War II where it kind of all first started. And, and just to try to keep that, keep that piece of history alive. Cause you know, I tried to go interview a lot of these guys and by the time I got to them, they had passed away. You know, unfortunately. And it's, that's it's what, very hard to do that. And I just wanted to memorialize that. So. 
Yeah, that's one of my only regrets. I wish I would have started this whole project five years ago because it's getting harder. And I, like I said, I do have an interview. I'm in the works. Probably the first week of January, second week, I'll have a, a veteran on here. But they are definitely getting fewer and fewer and harder and harder to come across. And we are just about out of time. Real quick before we go, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. Whether you're in Southwest Florida or not, and you have computer issues, as long as you have internet connection, they can help you through their website. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. They can remote in your computer help with you with all your issues. If you need anti- them right now. Okay, if you need antivirus protection, two-form authentication, online backup, super important right now with everybody working at home, give them a call at 239-283-1120. I'm waiting for that phone number to come through because it does, in fact, forward to my cell phone, <laughs> and they can help you guys right now. Give them a call. And um, if you guys haven't done so, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com click on that patreon link it's a dollar a month it helps to go to support this podcast on the podcast on the digital 410 network as well as the youtube channel thank you guys so much it's been another year we started this little podcast back in january of 2018 and we're still going thank you rj nevins for everything you do thanks for hanging out tonight's kind of like we're, yeah, thanks for having me. we kind of got to it early it's kind of like a walking point reunion because that project and you're museum um, Brandon and uh, Jeff are the reason we're all here together and the reason why we have this friendship. And, um, you know, I still know that uh, one of my favorite podcasts I did was the post-production podcast. And you mentioned Josiah earlier. I know he's personally responsible for like 33 of those downloads. He told me that he went back and listened to that episode so many times because he enjoyed the friendship that he made with you guys. And he was so touched by that night and i only i only knew you guys for 48 hours and by the time that that rolled around i felt like i known you guys for a week so i can only feel know how you guys felt working on that project for the length that you did well the, the 12 <laughs> bottles of champagne we drank that night probably helped too absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> everybody's a little bit friendlier <laughs> <laughs> at least 12 <laughs> well you guys oh, i was talking about me <clears throat> just me i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> We're going to wrap it up. You guys have a Merry Christmas, and thanks to everybody in the audience, and we will talk to you all next year. This has been a Digital 410 production.